Today's reading will be from Malachi, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The book of the prophet Malachi. He lived about a hundred years after the Israelites had returned from their Babylonian exile, and his message was directed to the people who had been living in Jerusalem for some time now. The temple had been rebuilt a while ago, and things were not going well. Just remember the stories from Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, when the Israelites first returned from exile, their hopes were high. They would return and rebuild their lives and the temple. All of the great promises of the prophets would come true. The Messiah would come and set up God's kingdom over a unified Israel and over the nations and bring justice and peace for all. But that's not what happened. The Israelites who repopulated the city proved to be just as unfaithful to God as their ancestors, resulting in poverty and injustice. And so in Malachi, we find out just how corrupt this new generation has become. The book's designed as a series of disputes, and most sections begin with God saying something, making a claim or an accusation, and then Israel will disagree or question God's statement. And then God will respond and offer the last word. This happens six times. In the first three disputes, God exposes Israel's corruption, and in the final three disputes, he confronts their corruption. And the overall impression you get from these arguments and disputes is that the exile fundamentally didn't change anything in the people. Israel's hearts are as hard as ever. The first dispute starts when God says that he still loves his covenant people despite their failures. And Israel rudely objects, saying, how have you shown us any love? And so God reminds them of how he graciously chose the family of Jacob, their ancestor, to become the carrier of God's covenant promises instead of Esau, his brother, and the family that came from him, who eventually came to ruin. Remember the stories from Genesis and the book of Obadiah. And so right from this first dispute, Israel is exposed as suspicious doubting God's love and faithfulness. The second dispute exposes a problem with Israel's second temple. God accuses the people of despising and defiling the temple. And the people fire back, how have we despised you? And so God responds by focusing on the people, how they're bringing shamefully lame offerings of these sick, blemished animals that show that they don't value or honor their God. But it's not just the people, it's the priests, too, who run the temple. They not only tolerate, but participate in these corrupt forms of worship. From top to bottom, God's people have proven faithless. In the third dispute, God accuses the Israelite men of treachery against him and their wives, which, of course, they deny. And God exposes the toxic combination of idolatry and divorce taking place. 
You have Israelite men marrying non-Israelite women and then adopting the worship of their wives' ancestral gods into their homes. Remember the story from Nehemiah chapter 13. And so Malachi connects this to a wave of men divorcing their wives for no good reason. And the people are all fine with this. And Malachi says, no, it's a betrayal of your covenant with God. And so Malachi transitions into the second set of disputes that confront Israel's rebellion. So the fourth dispute begins with the Israelites accusing God of neglect, saying, where is the God of justice? They see injustice and corruption abounding, and God seems to do nothing. So God responds by saying that he'll send a messenger who will prepare the people for God's personal return in the day of the Lord. He will come like fire to purify his people and to remove idolatry and sexual immorality and injustice so that only the faithful remnant is left to become his people. In the fifth dispute, God calls the people to turn back to him, to which the people say, how can we turn back? And so God confronts their selfishness. He shows how they've stopped offering a tithe of their income to the temple. Now, that word tithe just means one-tenth. It's the amount of their income and produce that the Israelites were to annually donate to support the temple and its priests. The practice is laid out in different parts of the Torah. Now, we know from Malachi and from the book of Nehemiah that the people were neglecting this responsibility. And so the temple was falling into disrepair. And so God confronts them. He says he wants to bless them with abundance, but only if they're going to be faithful. In the final dispute, the people accuse God and say that it's pointless to serve him. They observe wicked, prideful people succeeding in life, and God does nothing. And God's response, for the first time in the book, is not a speech, but rather a short story about the faithful remnant in Israel, people who fear the Lord, and they love to get together and talk about how to honor God and serve him. And so God orders that a scroll of remembrance be written for these people so that they can read the scroll and remember God's character and promises. Malachi, he's reflecting here on the divine gift of the scriptures, how they point us to the past to remember what God has done in order to inspire faithfulness and hope for the future, which leads to the conclusion of the book. It picks up and develops the imagery of the fourth dispute about the coming day of the Lord, but it develops it further. God says that he's appointed a day of purifying judgment that will consume the wicked from among his people. But what the conclusion adds is the future of the faithful remnant, because for them, the day of the Lord is not a threat. It's a cause for joy. It'll be like the rays of the rising sun that bring healing and life and hope for the future. And so Malachi's disputes come to a close, but there's still a bit more to this book. The final three verses, they're not part of the disputes, and actually they function like a concluding appendix, bringing closure not just to Malachi, but to the whole collection of the Torah and the prophets. So first, the reader is called to remember the law, or the Torah, of my servant Moses. This recalls the story and the laws of the covenant that you find in the first five books of the Bible. But then we hear this summary of the books of the prophets. I will send the prophet Elijah before the day of the Lord, who will restore the hearts of God's people. So this conclusion, it summarizes the Torah and the prophets as a unified story that points to the future. Israel was redeemed by God, and then they betrayed him through their rebellion and hard hearts, breaking the laws of the Torah. But the scriptures anticipate a future day when God's going to send a new prophet, a Moses, a new Elijah, who will restore God's people and heal their hard hearts. Remember all of the promises from Deuteronomy and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. 
And so this concluding appendix presents the scriptures as a divine gift to read and to ponder and to pray over. They tell the truth about the human condition, about our selfishness and our sin. But they also announce God's promise that one day he would send a messenger and then show up personally to confront evil, to restore his people and bring his healing justice. And it's that future hope that Malachi and the Torah and all of the prophets are about. Uh, good morning, Redemption. Glad you're here. A uh, couple things before we get started into Malachi. If you want to turn there in your Bibles or on your apps, that's where we'll be <clears throat> this morning. Um, first of all, we uh, have a, uh, a fifth Sunday month in December, and that means that we have baptisms on the fifth Sunday. So December 30th, we are going to have baptisms. We already have uh, two people who want to be baptized, but I wanted to make sure we announced it in church that we are doing baptisms. Uh, we're only going to do them in the morning between the first and second service. We're going to do them out on the patio. And yes, the, uh, the, the water will be heated for you, and there will be plush towels waiting for you uh, when you get out. But uh, we already have two that are getting baptized. If you want to be baptized, please contact me, and we can uh, talk about that. That would be great. Uh, something else uh, we need to mention, had a very really a, a very uh, difficult week for our community weekend um, um, this this last weekend uh, somebody who has been deeply embedded in our community uh, for as long as I have been here and and has helped uh, lead in various ways especially with uh, women's ministry uh, Sarah Valls uh, uh, passed away this weekend and um, it was very sudden and it has been very hard on many of us but um, I wanted to make sure that um, all of you knew, because many of you know her, all of you knew that uh, the family has already planned to have a memorial service for her on Saturday, January 5th, right, right in here. So um, if you're planning on coming or wanted to be able to come to that memorial service, we wanted to make sure that you had that date, and it's going to be at 2 o'clock and the time uh, for that memorial service so you can plan ahead for that. Um, so let me pray, and then we'll get into uh, Malachi this morning. Uh, Lord God, um, it, your word does not hesitate when it talks about um, difficulties, trial, crisis, hard times, um, and even in the midst of that, and even uh, as your people turn to you and complain and lament the hard times. We know that you're our rock, and you constantly point us to you. And, and so that's what we need right now. Uh, God, we lift up Sarah's family right now. Uh, we pray for them. Uh, we pray for Riley and Kira. We pray for uh, her parents, uh, John and Marianne, her sister Julie. Just ask that you would wash over them with your hope and your wisdom, your comfort, and your understanding. And God, for all of her uh, friends, here in this community. God, I just pray for them. Again, your wisdom and your comfort. And just remind us of the hope that we have in you. Uh, God, we look at Malachi this morning, and it is a book that is filled with uh, the reality of wickedness and evil, and yet again points us to you and your Messiah, your son, Jesus Christ. And so let's lift him up this morning as we do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Um, this might feel like a kind of an odd way to start this message, but hang in there with me. You'll see where we're going. I want to ask this question as we get started. What is a heretic? What is a heretic? Well, a heretic is a false teacher. We, we talk about uh, heretics and false teachers in the church all the time and, and how much scripture is written against false teachers, especially in the New Testament, uh, the letters of Paul and, and, and John and um, James. Uh, it's someone who is doctrinally impure. And, it, and, and a heretic is somebody who is going to uh, use these doctrinal impurities in order to lead people astray, lead them down the wrong path. So it's one... It's somebody who teaches heresies. Okay. But a heretic is also someone who insists on pushing against the status quo. And, and I want to turn this idea of heretic on its side a little bit this morning and think about the worldly cultural status quo. The, the world's doctrine that it has for us the culture's teaching of how we're supposed to be and how the culture itself, you, you know this is true. If you, you've seen it on social media recently. If you get out of line, if you're not doctrinally pure according to the culture, you will be judged and you will be assigned a label. Now, they may not use the label heretic, but that's what it is. You're pushing against the status quo. You're doing something wrong. You're doing something doctrinally impure. So as we go into Malachi today, I want you to uh, understand that there is more than one context for heresy. It doesn't just happen in the church. That, that principle can be applied just about anywhere. Um, here's something else we need to do. We need to back up a little bit. I want to provide you with a little bit of context for Malachi's message as well. Uh, we get that context from the book of Nehemiah. In the video, they mention Nehemiah chapter 13. I have a, a friend that uh, he and I uh, meet every two to three weeks for about an hour early in the morning. And we share life, but we also go through scripture together. Uh, he'll pick a book, and we'll just walk through it for as long as it takes to walk through it. And recently, he picked Malachi. We're, we're in chapter 3 now of Malachi, walking through it. Um, but when he picked it, um, I went to him the first time we met on Malachi, and I said, we have to study Nehemiah 13 in order to be able to understand Malachi. All of Nehemiah 13. We're not going to do that this morning. I've truncated it for this morning, but you need to understand that it took us three hour-long sessions to study Nehemiah 13 in order to get set up for Malachi because it provides so much wonderful context. But I want to give you just a taste of, of that uh, this morning. So Nehemiah 13, 4 through 13. Now before this... Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to, to Tobiah. So Eliashib was appointed, he was, a, he was in charge of the facilities at the, at the new temple of God. He was in charge of what went on in the rooms and supposed to take care of 
the rooms in there. And he was related to this guy, Tobiah. So he was a friend of Tobiah's, or maybe Tobiah was family. And so Eliashib, who was on the inside of God's house, the temple, wanted to do a favor for Tobiah, his cousin, his nephew, his friend, whatever that. Here you go. Political favors for friends and family. I'm so glad we live in a time when that never happens anymore. Okay. So he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I, Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, king of Persia, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked, to leave, uh, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. He came to rebuild the wall, if you know the story. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture for Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions, the Levites, uh, of the portions the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe and the gra of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedaiah of the Levites, and their assistant, Hanan, son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And with names like that, why wouldn't they be considered reliable? <laughs> and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. That's a, that's a piece of the, of the context that Malachi steps into. This is around 440 B.C. So this is about 80 years after last week's message in Haggai. And if you remember, it was 20 years before that, about, that the, the, the Jews started coming back from exile uh, in Babylon to uh, Jerusalem. And they began to rebuild the city. And eventually, they got around to rebuilding the temple. And then... Decades later, under the leadership of Nehemiah coming back, they rebuilt the wall. But, again, as we find so often, they were already turning their backs on God. So Nehemiah takes action. And by the way, the action he took here, does it remind you of any New Testament event that you can think of? It's not the first time that the house of, Lord had been, of the Lord had been cleaned out by somebody in leadership. Jesus also uh, did this. And... and, and Nehemiah asks a simple question, and again, it's a rhetorical question. He's not looking for information. He's making a point. But he says, why is the house of God forsaken? Of course, Haggai said the same thing last week. And Nehemiah begins to institute the reforms himself. He doesn't wait around. He doesn't form a committee. He doesn't pray about it. He just gets on it. But I will tell you, that made Nehemiah a heretic. The people that he started doing this to in the temple, that made him a heretic. He was pushing against the accepted status quo. Do you see that? That made him a false teacher in their eyes. 
He was pushing against power and comfort. And of course, Nehemiah was ostracized for it. Well, there's more heresy to come. Malachi begins his call to ministry at about this same time and in this very same uh, context. So let's just get started. We're not going to read all of Malachi. You'll be thankful for that. It's four chapters long, but we're going to take some texts and, and look through them. So uh, this first bit, we're going to read five verses out of chapter one and three out of chapter uh, three. And the content is important. You can pay attention to the content. But what's more important is this pattern that was pointed out in the video. We need to see this pattern. This is, this is how this is written. Um, this is the word of God. I want you to know this is the word of God. But I will tell you that you can study the Bible for literature too because it's beautifully written. The rhetoric in this is powerful. Uh, and the principles that are engaged by God's people by the power of his Holy Spirit make this compelling and profound communication. So this is the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So it's God speaking through Malachi to his people, Israel. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, the people say, how have you loved us? And the Lord says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Eden says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And then chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. God says this, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So this is the pattern of the book. And it's in the context of Nehemiah 13. God asks a question. The people respond mostly indignantly. And then God explains. And his message is pretty much the same every time if you want to generalize it. Here's the message. Faithfulness brings more blessing than faithlessness. Now, we need to understand, this is not a perfect formula. And it rarely works on the timing that we want. Isn't that true? We've tried that. We've tried being faithful so that God will bless us for an hour or so, and then it doesn't work, and we're on to something else. Now, that may be an exaggeration, but you know what I mean. But generally, this is true. You sow what you reap what you sow. Generally, this is true. Faithfulness brings more blessing than faithlessness. Faithfulness to God over time will give us a much better life, while faithlessness is sure to eventually bring sorrow and frustration, foolishness, and a general ethos of discontent for all of life. But this message doesn't wash with the people. They're angry as the message starts, and they don't like the explanation that Malachi gives them. 
because they naturally want to lean on their own understanding. All of us want to do that. All of us essentially are pretty sure that our own understanding is way better than the understanding of God. And so this made Malachi a heretic. Nehemiah was a heretic. Malachi was a heretic. I wonder if they formed a little club and got together as the heretics club, you know? You go back to chapter 1, another little section, verses 6 through 8. God says this, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Okay, now this is going to be tough for some of you to hear, but just think about it. If you give to God uh, in a way that doesn't honor God in the same way that we give to the government, okay, and I know you're thinking, but, but we're required and we could go to jail if we don't pay our taxes. Yes, but still, just try not to pay those taxes and you will see what happens to you, right? Tax fraud, tax evasion, audits. You, you will get, have you ever thought about being audited by God? Yeah, it, golly, it's awfully quiet in here, a few little smirks, that's cool, yeah. You ever thought about that? Um, th- I don't know why, but the, because they used animals, not money and checks and, and electronic transfers during the time, they used animals. I always think about this, a little personal story. Um, years ago, about 1983, I had a friend who had a, a litter of Lassa Apso puppies, and I'm a dog person, so I went and picked one out. I found the dog that looked, the, the one puppy that would look me in the eye, and I said, that's the one I want. And here you go. I named him Paco, little Frank. I loved him. Uh, Paco lived to be 18 years old. Um, and, of course, he was dear to me. He was around when I started dating Jackie, and so he started getting a little less attention when I started dating Jackie and married her. But, nevertheless, he was around for a long time. Um, Paco eventually went blind. He could barely walk. He started to have congestive heart failure, so he coughed a lot. Uh, at night, the only place he wanted to sleep was under the bed under me. And he'd wake me up occasionally coughing. And, and st- I mean, he was... He was exactly what God is describing here. And, and I know, he, he was near and dear to my heart. I still think about him today. He was near and dear to my heart. Uh, and yet, I'm still a pragmatist. You need to understand, I am a pragmatist. So when Paco was 17, 18 years old, if God had come and said, uh, you need to sacrifice something very valuable to me, I would have thought, well, I'm going to have to put him down soon anyway. Right? So why not, Paco? Why not do it now? That's what they're doing. They're looking over their flock, and they're saying, which one is going to hurt me the least economically to be able to give to God? That's what they're doing. Malachi was quite the heretic. 
for pointing this out. And here you go. I understand this. I get this. I've been around church world for a long, long time. There we go. I knew it. Sooner or later, every church is going to get to that message about money. They ju- churches just want my money. Maybe. I don't know. I, I, I've heard there are churches out there like that. Maybe so. Okay. Here you go. God doesn't need your money. He's God. It's not about what God is trying to get from you. It's about your uh, attitude, your position, your orientation toward God. Churches don't necessarily want your money. What the leadership of the church may want is for you to understand that there is wonderful teaching in the New Testament and the Old Testament, both about worshipful, sacrificial, honoring, giving to God. It's a form of worship. And God lays it out for us here. But that makes people heretics, and people want to push against that. Okay? Well, it gets even worse. Here you go, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. And I need to warn you now, okay, I'm going to use the word dung several times. You're going to get tired of hearing this word. But this word dung is in the text here. And we have to talk about the dung. So get used to hearing this four-letter word, okay? I think it's four-letter. I went to North High, I'm not sure. Anyway, and now, O priests, this command is for you. Ooh, talking to the priests now. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart and give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it, to heart, behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Wow. God is going to spread, spread dung on their faces. This is not the God that we have constructed in our mind, is it? Right? Some of you I know are just sitting there going, I can't believe this is in the Bible. Well, let me unpack it a little bit. By the way, this is quite an Advent message, isn't it? Just warm and fuzzy. <laughs> we need to remember, first of all, it's not just the people of God who are going astray, but they are being led astray. The people of God are being led astray by the very people who are supposed to be leading them well, shepherding them in life with God, and speaking truth to them when they need correction. They are being led away by the professional religious people. They're being led away by their pastors. This is a message for church leadership here. And the dung is the imagery that God uses for this. And believe me, this is not the first nor the last time that dung is used for illustrative purposes in the Bible. Think of Ezekiel. Think of Paul in Philippians. This is not uncommon. The priests are treating God so irreverently, and so as a consequence, the people are also treating God irreverently, It's as though they are spreading dung on the face of God. That's the metaphor he's using here. So God says, here's what that's like. It's kind of the golden rule, sort of a do unto others. You need to understand how badly you are missing the mark. And this may be the only way that I can get your attention is to talk about dung on your faces. 
you deserve the dung treatment. And there is, yes, great significance in the specific dung that God is talking about here. There's a point to this. When the priests and people would bring animals for sacrifice, even their worst animal, even their pacos, they still knew that not all parts of the animal were worthy for the sacrifice. It's like a hunter who knows that all parts of the animal are not fit for use, and so they need to clean the animal. And in these sacrificial processes, the waste of the animal was then thrown onto the garbage heap, which is outside the city of Jerusalem, outside of the walls, and that garbage heap area was known as Gehenna. Does that ring any bells for you in the New Testament? Can you start to see the symbolism coming together here for us? This is the dung that he's talking about in this passage. It has great symbolic weight. Now remember, you have to remember, this is not literal. God is not literally going to dung up the priests. Actually, he might, be, he might do something worse. He might place them for eternity in a place where they can never leave. Okay? This is a way of communicating the atrocity of the current situation with God's people and their leaders. But we, in the midst of this, should also be called to think about these issues in our own context today. It's not just true in 440 B.C. In our self-righteousness and in our worship of false gospels, what correction should you and I be asking for? Where do you and I need to call out for the grace and the mercy, the forgiveness and the wisdom of God? But you know what? That also means that we're going to be heretics, you and I. We're going to be cultural heretics. But even we may end up as heretics in some of our own comfortable churches if we do this. I hope you understand that. We start calling out for justice. We start calling out for uh, the eradication of corruption. We might start calling out problems in our own churches. Remember, this message was delivered to the priests, the professional religious people, the leaders of the church. A little bit further in chapter 2, verse 11 and then 13 through 16, God says, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because, we, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Why does he not accept my offering? Because the Lord was witness between you and your wife, uh, the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did, she not make them one, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Yes, God hates divorce. We hear that all the time from people. 
One of the minor prophets said, God hates divorce. Well, here it is. It's, it's Malachi chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 2. This is where God says it. And he expressly hates it in marriage. He does. But God hates it because it's also a picture of the overarching faithlessness of God's people, the schism between God and his people. That's why he hates divorce so much. Our marriages are a covenant that is to be treated with the same respect that God treats his covenant with us, with his people. And this means that in marriage, we lay down our power and authority, whether it's real or perceived, and we serve our spouse. We serve God. But again, Malachi was a real heretic for bringing this up. They didn't like this at all. Because not only were the people divorcing themselves from God, but divorce in their marriages was also running rampant. And for not very good reasons. And they didn't want to hear it. And the reasons, you, you, you heard again in the video, the reasons they were getting divorced, were it's the same stuff we hear today. I just don't feel it anymore. I found something I like better. I'm not being fulfilled the way I deserve. C.S. Lewis in the 1950s wrote this. Falling in love is something that happens to us. Staying in love is something that requires we work. That's true. But we live in a time of feelings now. And that justifies us doing whatever we want. God says, don't think so. And then 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone does evil, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Uh, it's interesting, I, for whatever reason, this made me think of uh, what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. Uh, Paul is, is uh, talking about how people know that God is creator and know what God wants from us, and yet uh, people turn their backs on God and do whatever they want, thinking that their way is better. And he winds up that discussion at the end of chapter uh, 1, verses 29 through 32, by writing this. They, the sinners, were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. That's what also was happening in Malachi's time. They're arguing with God about this, but in reality, they're looking at the people doing evil, and they're encouraging them in that because that was the new culture then. They were turning their backs on God. They were not only doing it, but they were also encouraging others to do it. We live in a culture today that does the same thing. It's not enough that you get to go and do your own thing but you try to get others to join you because that somehow makes you feel better about what you're doing. You understand the pathology of that. And that's the way we've been since Genesis chapter 3. That's nothing new. It's nothing no old. It's just the way it is. And God calls us out for that. And Paul specifically, you need to hear this. Paul, when, when people read Romans chapter 1, even today, even today, especially today, when people read Romans chapter 1, they say Paul's a heretic. Paul is a false teacher. He's pushing against the status quo. My heart is my guide. I can do whatever I want. 
I know better than God. And I'm going to encourage other people to follow me. Paul's a heretic. He's a false teacher. Back to Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 18. God says, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. This again goes back to when Cody preached a few weeks ago in Joel. What's the difference? Genuine repentance. And where does that repentance lead you to invest uh, your life? God is saying this is the natural consequence of sowing faithlessness. The natural consequence of sowing faithlessness. Again, I turn to Paul, in his letter to the church at Galatia, chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, Paul writes this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap the flesh of corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Paul says the same thing that God is saying in Malachi. But there is good news because Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Look at Malachi 3, 1 through 4. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And notice where God is starting. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. The Messiah comes. Salvation comes. But here you go. It starts with judgment. We said this a few weeks ago. For justice to prevail, just judgment must be rendered. The only way justice can prevail is if there is first judgment. We have to understand that. It can't happen any other way. And again, this is a reminder that the day of the Lord may not be as pleasant as we might expect the question is, have we repented? Have we come to Jesus? But look who the judgment starts with. I, I hope you saw it in there. Sons of Levi. Who are the sons of Levi? They're the priests. They're the pastors. They're the leaders of the church. We're so sure, all of us, including the leaders of church, we're so sure, like Jonah, the prophet Jonah that we're going to look at in the spring we're so sure that a good and just God, when he comes to smite, he's going to start with our enemies. We already assume we're on the right side of God's history, and everybody else is on the wrong side. And he's going to start with those hated enemies, and he's going to preserve and lavish us, but not necessarily. He doesn't start with our enemies. He starts with the house of God. He starts here, and he starts with the leadership. I think you can feel the weight of this. I feel the weight of this, okay? Starts with the leadership. I know some of you are secretly going, well, good. 
Yeah, I know, but it doesn't stop there. But again, it does end in victory for God's people. You look at uh, verse 5 of chapter 3. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against now the enemies, the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wager, wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Can you hear in that, can you hear some of the teaching of Jesus? You think about what Jesus taught in the New Testament. I can hear Jesus in there. Now, he, he, he puts a, a little different spin on it. He speaks in a, in a more positive way. But you understand Jesus was a heretic too in his context. Do you understand Jesus was a heretic in his context? They didn't crucify people that they agreed with. They didn't crucify people that weren't turning everything upside down or really turning everything right side up. They didn't crucify people that didn't push against their corrupted power structures. They killed him for it. Here's how Jesus was a heretic. This is what made Jesus a heretic. He called for judgment on the sinner. He called for justice for the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, the prisoner, and the stranger. He called for a selfless love ethic. He called for devotion to God. He called for a willingness to sacrifice for others, including those we don't like. He called us to walk away from sin and false gospels, and he called us to a godly sexual ethic. Jesus was quite the heretic. So when you and I embrace the heresies of Jesus, when you and I embrace the false teaching of Jesus, you and I also become heretics. And so, get used to be calling name, called names. Get used to being challenged. Get used to people dropping mics on you. Get used to discomfort. Get used to being marginalized. Get used to being targeted on social media. That's what happens to heretics in our culture. And you know what? It might, it might be good for us to become the marginalized minority voice in our culture. That might be good for us. When, when we're the power structure, when we're in charge, when we have the majority, our faith doesn't cost us very much. And so when we talk about our faith to other people, it may not be quite as compelling. But when we're the minority voice, when we're the marginalized, when we're the heretics, do you understand that when we sacrifice to live in faith to Jesus Christ, that message resonates. That message becomes the light in a very dark world. That might be good for us. And more importantly, that might be good for the gospel and for God. For Jesus Christ. It might actually mean something to people when our faith costs us something. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for their righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus said, if the world hates you, remember, they hated me first. 
Paul said, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in hardships and insults and persecutions. I delight in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. The grace of God is sufficient. Paul says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We are the heretics. Shame on us. Merry Christmas. The king of heretics was born 2,100 years ago in Bethlehem. That's what we're celebrating. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray that we would be given your strength and filled with your Holy Spirit to live as a light in a dark world, to live, to live as false teachers in a culture that does not value what you have to say, to be able to live as people who love in a radical way, in a ruthless way, and in a way that confounds the world. God, help us to do that. Give us the strength and the power to do that. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.